When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, uh, Elvis has left the building. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Got a really packed episode for you today, and it's all inspired by the number one movie at the box office right now, Elvis. We're going to talk a little bit about the real Elvis Presley and about the movie as well. To do so, first of all, I have an absolute legend joining us, Mike Stoer of the Lieber and Stoer songwriting team. His collaborator, Jerry Lieber, died back in 2011, but together these two guys wrote Kansas City, they wrote Smokey Joe's Cafe, they wrote, of course, Hound Dog, as we will discuss in great detail, You're So Square, Baby, I Don't Care, Yakety Yak, a million songs for Elvis, from Trouble to King Creole, There Goes My Baby for the Drifters, Stand By Me for Benny King, on Broadway by the Drifters. Just an endless list of classic songs, and I'm so happy to have him. Then we'll be talking with David Fear about Baz Luhrmann's movie. And after that, we have a great interview with the singer-songwriter Yola, who plays the key Elvis-influenced sister Rosetta Tharp in the Elvis movie. That interview was conducted by Rolling Stone News correspondent Delissa Shannon, and it's a great reminder of the importance of black women in particular to the formation of Elvis's sound. But let's start with Mike Stoller. <laughs> So, Mike, you got a chance to see the new Elvis movie at a screening hosted by Priscilla Presley, actually, as someone who knew and worked with Elvis and the Colonel. What did you make of the whole thing? Well, you know, it's a movie, and I loved it. I thought it was a, a wonderful movie. Frankly, a little over the top, but I think that Baz Luhrmann's is always a little over the top. And so was Colonel Parker. So I see them being jointly over the top a bit. The kid who plays Elvis is, I think, sensational. It's Austin Butler. Yeah. I think he's fabulous. Just unbelievable. I thought Tom Hanks was very good, but knowing the Colonel, I never heard him speak with any semblance of a European accent. I think they were trying to indicate that what which we had known, some of us, for a long time, that he was an illegal alien. And that's why Elvis never really got to do a show in Europe, even though they uh, really wanted him there. Now, if I were you, I probably wouldn't be able to help being just a little bit aggrieved that they showed Big Mama Thornton, they showed her doing Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. They showed Elvis doing Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. But they didn't mention the two guys who wrote the song, which would be you and your partner, Jerry Lieber. Did that bother you at all, even just a little bit? Well, I didn't expect anything, you know. So therefore, I was not disappointed in that regard. I mean, the whole thing uh, about Big Mom and Elvis, in a way, in my life, occurred when I had gone to Europe from my first ever trip to Europe and coming back, I was on the Andrea Doria when it collided, or whether the other ship collided with it, and it sank, and I thought, frankly, I, I was going to die. And by the time I reached New York, after being in a broken lifeboat and rescued by a freighter, Jerry Lieber knew that I was coming in, and he was at the dock, and he, he said to me, the first thing when I walked down the gangplank, he said, Mike, we got a smash hit. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, hound dog. I said, Big Mama Thornton? He said, no, some white kid named Elvis Presley. And that's so within less than 24 hours, I thought I was going to die, and then 
found out I had a big smash hit with some white kid named Elvis Presley. And what did you make of the depiction of Big Mama in that movie? Well, it's, you know, it's not 100% accurate, but I was happy that she was depicted in, in the film and that she sang, for the most part, the lyric yeah. that we had created, the lyric that Jerry had written, which is a song that a woman sings to a man, not a, a man to a dog, right? <laughs> exactly. So it started in, I guess, 1952. Johnny Otis, who was an R&B singer and sort of an impresario, a very important figure in R&B in general, played a lot of different roles. But he called you guys up, you and Jerry Lieber, and said that Don Roby, who owned Peacock and Ace Records and had Big Mama Thornton on his label, needed a hit for Big Mama Thornton. And so Johnny Otis invited the two of you over to his garage to watch some rehearsals. That is correct. And you saw Big Mama Thornton singing, and it was some kind of blues, I'd imagine. I don't remember exactly what the song was, but she knocked us out. And she was very formidable. You know, she was a big woman. I would say well over 200 pounds. I don't know if she was more. And it's kind of tough. Had a few little scars on her face. She wore boots and uh, kind of overalls. But she really knocked us out. We jumped in my car. I had a 37 Plymouth. And we drove back to my house, which wasn't that far away from where Johnny lived. You know, it took only 10 or 15 minutes, and we had this song and brought it back to Big Mama. The chords that you wrote in Big Mama's version are much more complicated than what ended up in Elvis's version. He, in addition to changing the lyrics, a change that he took from this other group that he actually based his version on rather than Big Mama's version. He also wildly simplified the chord structure. I've never really heard anyone comment upon that. Well, the thing is that Elvis heard a group, the Bellboys. Yeah, he went to Vegas and heard this group, Freddie Bell and the Bellboys. And they had their own sort of version of Hound Dog that was kind of a whole different thing. And if you listen to it, that's the version that he latched onto, even though he was well aware of the Big Mama version as well. And the Freddie Bell version made that lyric change. You ain't nothing but a Hound Dog, a Hound Dog. It also was definitely a sort of wider and goofier version. But he had known Big Mama's record because, in fact, there was an answer record back in 53 when, when Big Mama's record came out, even though it was recorded in 52. And this guy did an answer record that was a kind of common thing in the R&B field at that time called Bearcat. You ain't nothing but a Bearcat Been scratched at my door And that was on Sun Records. So I know that, that he had heard Big Mama and when we ultimately met Elvis, we talked about a lot of blues singers and we were surprised at how knowledgeable he was and I guess he uh, may be surprised at how knowledgeable we were about blues singers and, and some of the and hit records in the R&B field that we both knew. And in the case of the Big Mama record, which is an amazing landmark recording, you and Jerry Lieber ended up basically producing that recording because Johnny Otis was going to supervise the session, but he ended up playing drums on it, so he couldn't. So there you were, these two very young white Jewish kids trying to win the trust of these incredibly seasoned and talented musicians. And I think Jerry, early on, ha had to tell Big Mama that she was crooning too much. He wanted her to do more of her blues shout on the song. That was at the re first rehearsal when we handed her the, the sheet of paper with the lyrics, as she later described in some raggedy piece of paper. But then Jerry and I performed the song the way we imagined it should be done. 
And of course, the band was there, Johnny's band, and they were falling off their chairs listening to Jerry and me. But then she she got the idea, and Johnny was playing drums in the rehearsal. His his band drummer had not shown up at the rehearsal, but he was in the studio anyway. It wasn't happening in the rundown in the studio, and we said, Johnny, you got to play drums, because that's what was happening. And he said, you know, so who's going to run the session? And we said, we will. And he said, you guys, are you kidding? Anyway, that's what happened. And Johnny played drums, Pete Lewis on on the guitar, which was fabulous. Don't remember the name of the bass player, and the, but there was a, a woman playing piano, a Lady D. I think her name was Devonia Williams. Anyway, the rest of the band, the horn players, you know, we had them in the studio, and we decided we would bark at the end of the recording because that kind of little sound effect thing was happening in R&B records, you know. They would have something about the rain or the storm or something, and they would have a microphone in the bathroom and flush a toilet to get some kind of sound effect for that, so we just barked. Now, the Big Mama Thornton version of Hound Dog was, of course, a huge hit in its own right in 1953, but the way that label ran its business, you and Jerry Lieber didn't really get any money at all from that recording, and neither, sadly, did Big Mama Thornton. And on top of that, the songwriting credits weren't even correct at that point. Johnny Otis's name was on it for a while. And I think that you and Jerry Lieber at least had to threaten legal action over all that. We didn't sue about that, but the thing is that the local distributors knew, because Jerry and I kept bugging to get you know, when the record is coming out, we couldn't wait because they just knew it was going to be a hit. And uh, so they must have told Don Roby that these kids had written a song, whereas Johnny Otis had told Don Roby that he had power of attorney for Jerry and me, which he didn't, and also that he had co-written a song with us, which also he hadn't. I mean, I I like Donny Otis. I, I have a lot of respect for him in many ways, but I was very upset with what happened. At any rate, Don Roby came to town to sign a contract with us, and we had to have our mothers there to sign the contract because we were underage. So the original contract was signed by both Jerry and me and by both of our mothers. Wow. I mean, obviously, Big Mama Thornton was upset, to say the least, throughout her life that she never really made money off of Hound Dog. You and Jerry Lieber eventually did make money off that particular song once Elvis recorded it. But an artist can only get royalties on their own recording of a song, of course, and because of the way her label was, which wasn't great, she just did not get royalties. And it's quite understandable, of course, that she was upset about that. I can understand that. Uh, yeah. We did on occasion, you know, send us some funds. But, uh, you know, we we didn't uh, manage her. She should have sued Don Roby. And then when you heard Elvis Presley's version, I don't think you had been aware that there was this intermediate version by the Bellboys. And so you did not like what Elvis did to the lyrics, and you didn't really like what he did musically much either. No, it didn't have the grooves that Big Mama's record had, which was fantastic, fantastic groove. I mean, it's just great. And Big Mama was singing, I mean, and the band followed her, which was incredible, because as it written as a 12-bar blues, but some verses were teen and a half bars. I mean, but the band just went with her. It was amazing and wonderful. It wasn't just a standard blues either. There were a lot of minor chords thrown in. There was actually a lot going on there. That was all in Pete Lewis's guitar, and he had retuned his guitar. I can't tell you quite how he retuned it, but I think it was an old tuning, rather than, you know, E-A-D-G-B-E. 
I don't know what he did, but it sure sounded fabulous. He was a wonderful player. This was all a very long time ago, and as the years pass, I think the narrative has gotten simplified or confused. And I think when younger people discover that there was this earlier version of Hound Dog by Big Mama Thornton, they start using terms like stolen. They say, well, geez, Elvis Presley stole Hound Dog from Big Mama Thornton. Is there any part of you that thinks that's a valid way to look at this complicated story? No, you know, he picked it up very closely because later on, a year or so, I heard the Freddie Bell and the Bellboys, and and Elvis is doing pretty much the way they had kind of rewritten the song, and so it seemed to be uh, about a dog. It's interesting to note that in 1952, you and Jerry Lieber were thinking you were writing an R&B song, a rhythm and blues song. The word rock and roll was not in your consciousness at that point. Blues. Blues. Yeah. You know, the, the expression of rhythm and blues was around, but rock and roll, no, I don't think that was really um, in our minds uh, or you know, at all. And later, I guess all these things were considered rock and roll or precursors of rock and roll. And that was, of course, far from the end of your association with Elvis Presley. You had a song called Love Me, and that was the next one he recorded. The publishers who had purchased the song Hound Dog from uh, Don Roby's publishing company, Lion Music Publishing Company in Houston, they they knew us from some other things. And they contacted us and asked, did we have anything else that might be good for Elvis? And Jerry thought of the song Love Me, which we had recorded by a a duet, Willie and Ruth, on our own little label that we had with our mentor, Lester Sill, and Love Me on Spark Records. Treat me like a fool. sent them that and he loved it and did it. Then they asked us to write a song for a film and we wrote a ballad kind of an Irving Berlinish kind of song called Loving You. And then they wanted us to write for another movie. It became Jailhouse Rock named after one of the songs we wrote for it. Wow, so what was the original title on the Jailhouse Rock screenplay? I think it was called Ghost of the Chan. I think so. Which is also a very nice song. So you and Jerry Lieber went to New York where you were supposed to write these songs for the movie that became Jailhouse Rock. And you were kind of procrastinating on the actual writing of these songs. Instead, you were two young guys having a ball in New York. True. And one day we were having breakfast. We had a a, a two-bedroom suite. And we had rented a piano just in case an upright piano in the suite. Gene Aberbach, who was one of the two, the brothers who published the Hill and Rains was their company, Hill and Rains songs, but they also controlled Elvis Presley music. They had made a deal with the Colonel about that. Anyway, he came over and he asked, he said, where are my songs? Because we'd had a script for a week or so and just thrown it in the corner with what's on in New York magazines. And I remember Jerry said, don't worry, Dean, you'll have them. And he said, I know, because I'm not leaving here until I have them. And he pushed a big overstuffed chair in front of the door. And we ended up writing four songs for the film in about five hours. We were in the studio later with Elvis and we demonstrated. But I think I think we even made demos on those songs. I don't know where those demos are these days. We went looking for them once but couldn't find them. You guys were obviously quite skilled at writing for particular singers by that point as you did for Big Mama and for other people. So I guess you were thinking about what material would work for this guy, for Elvis Presley, as he wrote Jailhouse Rock. Born through a party in the county jail. The prison band was there, they began to wail. The band was jumping and the joint began to swing. And you're so square, baby, I don't care. You don't like crazy music. 
don't like rocking bands. He doesn't want to go to a movie show and sit there. And the other songs you wrote in that four or five hours. Yeah, well, even though we weren't thrilled with his performance of Hound Dog, although years later, doing interviews, I said that after that record sold about seven million singles, I began to see some merit in it. But we did learn that Elvis was a hell of a good singer, wonderful. So writing songs for him was a joy. And again, you and Jerry were in the studio with Elvis, maybe even supervising those sessions for those songs. One of the heads of RCA was started doing the sessions, and he would always say, you know, RCA, string of numbers, take one, and... Before long, he left, and we just took over. And Jerry was mostly in the booth, and I was out on the floor with the players and the Jordanaires. So I was on the floor with them and playing things for Elvis, uh, ideas and so on and so forth. And then between takes, of course, Elvis would sing gospel song or another blues. He was he was busy. And then I remember on Jailhouse Rock, Jerry and I thought take nine was it. I mean, it was perfect. He wanted he kept saying, I can do it better, I can do it better. And we were up to like take twenty-eight, twenty-nine, and he said, Well, let's hear that one you guys like. And we played it back to him. He said, Yeah, yeah, that's the one. So we got along very well with Elvis. Unfortunately, we didn't get along with the colonel, so... <laughs> the colonel stepped in, really, to make sure that you guys didn't get too close to Elvis. Yeah, he, he didn't want anybody, especially the songwriters, getting close to Elvis. And one of the main reasons was if Elvis heard something that he loved, he would want to do it. And I think that's what happened with Hound Dog. He loved the record that Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys had. And so they had to go and buy the song from Lion Music Publishing to own it. And they did not want Elvis to hear a song from a songwriter that he might say, I'm recording this. And they didn't have the publishing rights. And that's what happened. While we were making the movie of Jailhouse Rock, and I was the piano player in the film, Elvis asked me one day, it was a Friday, I remember, he said, Mike, write me a real pretty ballad. So I said, okay. So I called Jerry. The next day we wrote a song called Don't. Don't. And then we made a demo of it on Sunday, and I brought it in and gave it to Elvis on the Monday. Anyway, word got out that Elvis had received the song directly from me, and that caused all kinds of pandemonium. You had the privilege of knowing Elvis when he was young and humble. I mean, what was your sense of him as a person? You obviously connected over your knowledge and love of the blues, but was he smart, not smart, funny, not funny? He was bright, yeah, very. But the other thing was that he was all of two years younger than Jerry and me. At that point, I think we were 24 and he was 22. And I, in the studio, I had to say, Elvis, this is Jerry and I'm Mike. Don't call us, sir. <laughs> And he was probably very sheltered in a way and kept sheltered by the colonel deliberately. Yeah, they hired his boyhood friends who traveled with him. Georgie Klein, Lamar Fike, a couple of his cousins. I don't think Jerry Schilling was... I don't remember meeting Jerry Schilling at that time, although Jerry Schilling was a boyhood friend of Elvis's in around Memphis. I know they played football together. Stuff like that. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. A question people ask a lot is, did Elvis have the right to be doing black music? And was he coming at it from a place of love or a place of what they call cultural appropriation or perhaps both? From your experience with him, how do you think he was approaching black music? I know at this time, the stage, people talk about uh, uh, exploitation and uh, appropriation i you know that could be applied to pat boone maybe because he didn't really love the music he was just trying to make a buck off of it i mean there's no crime in being compensated for your work but we loved that music that was the music that we both loved yeah i mean i guess i would hope that everyone could hear the difference between what Elvis Presley did at his best and what Pat Boone did. It's kind of the difference between feeling something in your bones and quite obviously not, which is the case for Pat Boone. But at the same time, there obviously is a tragedy in the Big Mama Thornton story. The world I guess, did not reward her talents in the way she deserved. And that is a very real story, too. And that is the result of systemic racism and also, frankly, of a business, the record business, that especially back then was just quite literally full of thievery. That's true of not only of Big Mama, but of many black performers and songwriters. You know, the... Don Rovey treated Big Mama and Lieber Stoller in the same way. He just, you know, it was the custom in those days, and, and Don was a black man, to exploit, you know, artists and, and performers. Was done by other black entrepreneurs, as well as certainly many, many white entrepreneurs who were in the field. I'm sure they did the same in country music as well. I guess one thing you could say about the colonel is the colonel made sure that no one other than the colonel was ripping off Elvis. He certainly made sure that he and Elvis got their share of the money, that's for sure. Absolutely, but, you know, there being so much money that I'm sure the colonel had a great deal to do with how how much money Elvis earned. But he also took a big share of it for himself. That was, as he used to say uh, in those deals, Elvis would get, you know, X X number of million dollars on this deal. And he said, yeah, that's good. Now, how about for me? Or vice versa. He would say, a million dollars? Yeah, that's perfect. Now, how much for Elvis? And writing for Elvis, of course, meant making a deal. You had to sign over the publishing and some of the writer's share as well. The colonel got worked out that a third of the writer's end went, not the performance income, but the record royalty income. And then we found out later that the colonel had deals going in Europe, whereby Jerry and I got very shortchanged on the success of our songs in the UK and elsewhere. We we fortunately had contracts that whereby the rights were returned to us after 28 years. Finally, I've always wondered, in the lyrics to Jailhouse Rock, uh, there's that line, number 47 tells number three, you're the cutest jailbird I ever did see. Now that's a, you know, it's, it's a gay reference. In 1957, did that just fly by? Did anyone ever try to stop it or comment upon it? It just flew right by. It was funny. 
Well, Mike, thank you so much for digging back into your memory and sharing these stories. It was a real honor to have you. So now I wanted to bring on David Fear to talk about Elvis, the movie. So David, thank you for joining me. Where do you stand on the on Baz Luhrmann in general as a filmmaker? Baz Luhrmann, of course, made this new Elvis movie. Yeah, I mean, Baz Luhrmann has never, he's never met a spectacle that he didn't want to throw into a pop culture blender and hit puree and throw in some Nirvana pop songs. And just like, I mean, he really becomes this kind of crazed, maximalist, uh, like, synthesis in which... If he's going to make us a movie about the Moulin Rouge, which was, you know, the great excessive spectacle of its day in France, he's going to throw in as much excessive spectacle as possible. So in a way, when I first heard that he was going to be doing this Elvis biopic, part of me was like, oh, God, why did it have to be him? And then the second part of it was, oh, God, thank God it's him. Because if there's any, if there's going to be anybody who's going to kind of capture the sheer over-the-topness of Elvis Presley, the king, and all of his over-the-top excessiveness, but but Baz Luhrmann. I think the question then becomes, though, how do you feel about Baz Luhrmann's Elvis? Which is, I mean, and the question is, I don't know how to feel about it, Brian. Like, I, it's a movie that I've been thinking a lot about since I've seen the last couple of weeks, and I, I keep going back and forth on it. I mean, I think, I think there's more happening in the first two minutes of that movie than in the first two acts of most movies, which is... And it starts in Vegas, and it, even the Warner Brothers logo is this kind of gaudy gold bobble. And you just are immediately kind of dropped into this world in which it's not just going to be about Elvis, who was this kid from Tupelo, who became a singer, who became a star, who became, you know, the symbol of America. It's going to be about this just sort of Godzilla-style cultural disruptor, disruptor stomping all over the world that's, you know, presented as a carnival attraction by this guy who just hears nothing but dollar signs when he sees him. I mean, let me ask you this question. How do you feel about Baz Luhrmann's Colonel Tom Parker biopic that happens to co-star Elvis? Tom Hanks is not at his best when he has to do this kind of villainous character role encumbered by makeup. I think it's not him playing to his strengths. The best thing about it were some of the musical moments and Austin Butler himself, who I really thought was pretty good. I don't know what you thought about him. I like Austin Butler's performance as Elvis a lot, especially when he's on stage and especially when he's on stage in Vegas. I think that whole last third, even, you know, as it's the king kind of falling apart, is really wonderful. And I, you know, I had no real, I've seen Austin Butler in a couple of films. I mean, obviously you can't talk about Elvis without talking about, you know, the seismic power of those shaking hips. And when you see him in the Louisiana Hayride sequence, as Elvis sort of shaking these hips with these great zoom-in close-ups of his crotch in pink pants and then cutting to the audience just, like, losing their shit entirely. You know, like, I don't think every star could pull that off. I mean, I think there are a lot of people you gotta, you could have got besides Colonel Cloud Atlas to play mm. Tom Parker and play Tom Parker as this kind of Jabba the Hutt-like figure that takes Elvis and, you know, turns him into something else entirely. But at, at, at what cost? Brian, at what cost? But in terms of Austin Butler, you kind of see that performance and you sort of go like, oh yeah, like he he steps into the role. He steps into and steps up to the role. And I think, I think you can't deny that that's a big reason why a lot of this film is so much fun. It's just when you get into everything else, I mean, Elvis exists at the intersection of so much stuff in America in terms of like entertainment and race and politics and arcana and you know just his symbolic importance of kind of the beauty and vulgarity of the usa and then to try and like capture all this stuff by turning hound dog into this hip-hop song with 808 beats in the background in an attempt to kind of collapse the notion that like all of rebellious music is all one thing and starts here feels so inc incredibly reductive like it's just one of those kind of experimental pop synthesis gambles that Baz Luhrmann does that just kind of turns into a mulligan. You ain't nothing but a dog, play a frog, play a I was expecting to be more annoyed by the efforts to sort of bring in modern music and not just stick with what it actually sounded like at the time. But there wasn't as much of that as I feared. 
My problem with the movie went to other things, which is it's somehow incredibly fast-paced and incredibly slow-paced at the same time. It was one of the most weirdly paced movies, I think, ever. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing because he's Eslerman and it's just picking and choosing these these parts of Elvis's life to really spend a lot of time on and other significant parts that he just kind of glosses over. The entire Sun Session recordings are literally just like a montage snippet where essentially it's this like sort of really quick thing where you see Sam Phillips nodding behind a track or between a, a mixing board, mixing these tracks. And then Elvis kind of like shaking his hips really quick and then it just kind of moves right on. They clearly made a good faith effort to engage with and address the very fraught racial issues around Elvis Presley. I think what it didn't do was get across kind of the way I see it, which is that the real problem isn't in Elvis himself. The issue is the lack of recognition for black artists that that little Richard and Chuck Berry were just as deserving of the title King of Rock and Roll. And there were some scenes that I think young viewers thought had to be fake, like the fact that he was friends with B.B. King. Totally true. That little bit where they called him King of Rock and Roll in Las Vegas, and then Fats Domino happened to be there. He brought him on stage and said, no, this is the King of Rock and Roll. And Fats Domino, by the way, unlike Chuck Berry, has a claim to coming before Elvis Presley. Fats Domino recorded in 1948 a song, the, the Fat Man, that had a you know a good claim to being a rock and roll song. They call, they call me the fat man. Did Elvis do that in Las Vegas with Fast Domino? Yes, he did. Exactly in those words that actually happened. And I really think some young viewers just somehow just thought that was made up to appease them. But no, that, that did happen. And I, and I thought another valid critique was, and I think probably because they already made a whole movie about it, they could have shown how Elvis was so pill-addled and confused by the 70s that he was ranting about law and order to Nixon in the White House. I think they that would have added some balance. That actually surprised me that they... That, that didn't get added to this Elvis movie because you kind of assumed, given, again, given how excessive and over the top and how odd that whole encounter was and how how it really kind of presents, for so many people, that is the epitome of the king in decline, even more than like, you know, stuffing fat Elvis into a white suit is the, is the Nixon stuff. The race stuff is weird. The race stuff is weird because while a lot of that stuff did happen, I knew that he was friends with B.B. King. How the movie presents B.B. King, however, as being this this black figure that almost is there to sort of excuse Elvis for being part of this systematic thing in which a lot of white people are going to make a lot of money off him singing like he's a black artist. There's something about that whole, those whole scenes with him, them together where you're like, oh, that's so great that he was friends with B.B. King and that B.B. King actually gets a voice in here. And then him and me like, don't worry about it, Elvis. Black people will be behind you. You're like, ah, really? I, what is it? What exactly is his function in this movie right now? And that left me feeling a little uneasy. It's weird because that really was what BB King was like, apparently. You know, and even in my own experience, asking BB King about white people doing the blues, not rock and roll, because BB King wasn't really a rock and roll guy, but. The fact that they specifically deployed BB, who felt that way, as opposed to other people who did not. It simplifies in the wrong places, it lies in some of the wrong places, and tries to address the race stuff without quite hitting the, the nail on the head. What you do get, I think, is how dangerous people felt Elvis was at the time. I feel like that comes through in the first half of this movie really well. And not just because he is like sparking and unleashing the libidos of an entire generation. It's also because because of who, where he's from and where he's mostly doing that and how that is sort of bleeding into all parts of the United States. I mean, look at Sinatra. Sinatra, who is many people consider the first teeny bopper, like Sinatra drove crowds of young women into a frenzy, but S Sinatra never tried to integrate the South, you know, in a way that like his music was really bringing all these people together that scared, you know, the pro-segregation folks. I don't doubt that Elvis might have had one of those come to Jesus moments where he, as a boy, stuck his head in a juke joint and saw some playing somebody playing these gut bucket blues and that influenced him greatly and helped grow and nurture his love of black music, which he would then go on to, you know, both bring to wider audiences and in a lot of ways start the entire argument about cultural appropriation again and again and again of the in the modern 21st century. And yet the the Arthur Crudup figure plays the exact same 
exact same sort of part that the Native American shaman does in the Oliver Stone's movie, The Doors, where he almost becomes this larger symbolic force that almost has nothing to do with A, who that guy was as a real artist, or B, the sort of influence that he might have had on Elvis for good or for bad. I don't mind maximalism, but I think when it becomes maximalism that starts really playing around with this kind of, this loaded symbology, that's when I start to feel a little like, I'm the one who's shaking all over, put it that way. I think that's a great point. I, I thought that that depiction of Arthur Big Boy Crudup who, by the way, Elvis did say that he saw physically around town, but also, you know, made records. <laughs> you know, yeah. he rec- he recorded That's All Right. Well, now that's all right, no mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, no mama. It did come off a touch, it did come off a touch misleading, and it did, right, it reduced him to this sort of elemental force when he was a person, you know, <laughs> and an artist who really did get screwed over, not by Elvis, but by the music business. And that's also sort of, again, that's sort of where where the confusion lies. It's like, you know, there was a lot of screwing over done. It often wasn't Elvis doing that screwing over. I mean, he was unfortunately the beneficiary of that systemic racism. But, you know, and, and the other thing, and I, I do think the music I do think the movie gets across. He was great. You know, he was he was great. Well, that's all right, mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, mama. Just any way you do that. And I think my definitely my favorite scene is at the hayride, and he unleashes his full musical and libidinal force. And some people said, oh, the reactions of the women in the audience were exaggerated for the film. And I was thinking, no, I really don't think they were. It's almost impossible for people to understand it, even, you know, I, I certainly wasn't around, to, and I, I include myself, to understand what a, a neutron bomb of a force he was on television, on, on radio, and how much he unleashed in the culture, like it or not, you know, and that, you, you know, you can go to a, to a Bruce Springsteen or a million other people whose lives were changed by seeing him and, and created music because they saw him. You know, and and so it it gets some of that. It captures some of the spirit. I guess it's frustrating because there's not going to be another Elvis biopic this big probably ever. And, you know, you kind of wanted to see the Scorsese version, you know, or someone else a little more naturalistic. And it's like he somehow, like you said, it it's not really satisfying as the sort of pop spectacle distorted version of Elvis, nor is a naturalistic biopic. And so it lands somewhere in between and isn't that satisfying. I will say that when I, when I saw it, there was a, an, a woman probably in her 80s by herself who sat through the whole thing by herself and afterwards, and I, I walked out next to her and I asked her if she liked it and she said, I loved it. So it did bring it, it brought it back enough for someone who was there and that's, that's valuable too, I don't know. In a way, I wish that, I wish that this film would kind of help bring the John Carpenter biopic of Elvis that he made for TV in the late 70s Back into circulation. Kurt Russell, right? the Kurt, yeah, starring Kurt Russell as Elvis. I wish it would bring this back into circulation, A, because it's a straight biopic of Elvis, and people could get the kind of meat and potatoes, cradle to grave version of a biopic that this film is not. And B, it would also help people realize that Lerman is doing things in this Elvis biopic by not doing a straight biopic, by making this kind of crazy sort of hunk of hunk of burn and love biopic that he's actually tapping into a lot of the stuff about the spirit of Elvis and kind of why Elvis is this massive, not to sound all egghead academic, but like why he's a cultural signifier as much as like a great rock and roll singer and an amazing force of pop culture. I will say though that like there, uh, when I first saw this, I kept comparing it to the peanut butter and fried banana sandwich of biopics in that it's this insane concoction you take a couple bites of it and you're like, wow, I've never tasted anything like this before, even though these ingredients are very familiar to me. This is actually kind of wonderful and delicious. And I totally understand why the king ate a lot of these in the last years of his life. And then you eat some more of it and you're sort of like, oh, man, this is a little too rich for my blood. I also enjoyed very much the comeback special yeah. sequence. And it does bring up this thing. Increasingly, I wonder if these biopics, especially post-Bohemian Rhapsody which some of the whole point of the movie was just to 
basically bring a, a version of the Live Aid performance into theaters with very good current sound and, and shot like you can shoot things currently. And to a certain extent, that's what this was too. And I wonder if that's sort of to a certain extent where these things are going, that they end up being sort of, in addition to movies, sort of like holographic replication <laughs> entertainment experiences, which I, I think there is something, because essentially it was just, you know, they recreated the comeback special. <laughs> they just recreated it and it, it works very well, but it's it's interesting. It's a new sort of use of, of cinema. In a lot of ways, I'm, I'm glad that somebody like Baz Luhrmann exists so that if he's going to make a musical biopic, if he's going to tell the story of Elvis... He's going to do it in a way that really makes it feel larger than life. Because Elvis, for all of the other things you can say about him, was definitely, up until the end, larger than life. I will say I, I, will say I do want the, the full-on Little Richard biopic, the fabulously gay, super religious <laughs> Little Richard biopic could be amazing, especially focused on his, on his early years. The idea of like a 17-episode Little Richard miniseries done by Ryan Murphy, for example, or Bruce LaBruce. I could see an artist like that really going to town on the Little Richard story. And that was David Fear on the Elvis movie. And finally, here's Yola in conversation with Rolling Stone news correspondent Delissa Shannon, talking about playing Sister Rosetta Tharp in the Elvis movie. She even gets to perform Sister Rosetta's song, Strange Things Are Happening, every day. For those who don't know, here's a little history lesson. I'm lucky. I grew up amongst music nerds and record collectors and real, just everyone was so nerdy about music and I was, so I just absorbed everything. So I was a fan of Sister Rosetta Tharp. So she's taking blues bends and she's giving it this church-related pace and building up this energy to the point where it's rocking. The shred, this first shred, she is that first person to innovate that sound, that energy, and the drivingness that is rock and roll. Elvis runs home from school when he's a kid to listen to her on the radio. He'll do anything to get home to listen to her. And as he grows up, he's just absorbing all of that. Same with Little Richard, same with B.B. King. All these people, they were the youngest. She was the generation older. So she's already been doing this for, you know, 10, 15 years before, you know, they've had any introduction to the idea of it. And so that's something that, you know, for, for me, I'm trying to redress that imbalance of credit and of knowledge just in the general populace. I think we have to give her her flowers and give Black America their flowers for being the home of another foundational genre of American and contemporary music. This whole process of giving Black women their flowers is something that we are profoundly late on. I think it's it's either 2016 or 2017 that Sister Rosetta Tharp was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So if I had invented a genre, I'd be, I'd be pissed. If I was like, hey, I just invented a whole gosh darn genre, I, I give you this gargantuan gift, more valuable than a Fabergé egg, and then I discover Little Richard and I give you that gift, and he influences people like Prince and Michael Jackson, and the, the lineage just from her is, and that's just one line I can think of. I can think of many, many, many. We take her out of history, there's a gaping chasm that is left. So the idea of like us having like a <laughs> somehow equal level of gratitude for those gifts. We're not even close. We're not even close. And cross genre, we need to broadly be able to start talking about women as geniuses and especially black women because we're doing the most. So when it comes to this movie, I feel like black women are represented in a way that feels foundational to the story. It's a movie about Elvis. So we're gonna get a story about Elvis but we've always had this story out of context. We've always had this story as if he was hewn, not born. Black women play this foundational role in the making of Elvis, from Sister Rosetta Tharp, who I play, her creating of a genre that he grows up on and that inspires him, to Big Mama Thornton, who sings a very profoundly raunchy horn dog. <laughs> it's like, Horn dog, hound dog, 
Horned dog, hound dog, same thing. Let's not forget Mahalia Jackson of all people, goodness gracious. We're getting this like the most heartfelt, authentic portrayals of black and female innovation and creativity in this movie. And it's creating the world in which Elvis really doesn't want to have to leave. And you're like, yeah, I get it. It looks lit. The number of times I watch a movie and I'm like, you've done us dirty as black women is like a lot. And I didn't get that feeling one time. And that, my friends, is a victory. You know, <laughs> right there. Not only that, but we're actually a foundational reason. We're the raison d'etre. We're the source. We're the alpha and the omega of this situation. Great, of which we give, we spring forth this little musical baby. We get this treatment that is like, like just essential and you know, providing this really essential context to the story. And even though it's a story about Elvis and it's not about us to a degree, it's, it's something that every story that isn't about us needs. Context. So as to how Sister Rosetta Tharp, Mahalia Jackson and Big Mama Thornton make themselves known in my work, I have a song called Diamond Studded Shoes and like I rock out on guitar on that. And I feel like if I didn't have exposure to Sister Rosetta and her guitar stylings, I don't feel like I would have felt that instant kinship and ownership of guitar playing because I was told like a gazillion times that a black woman had no right playing guitar. I was even told by an, a record company, A&R, that no one wanted to hear a black woman sing rock and roll. And I was like, well, that's weird because a black woman invented it. I was lucky that I had exposure to these artists early to be able to grasp these things and make them feel like a, ho a home for me, you know, because I had, you know, the ancestors lighting the way. And that's our show. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back. We are a podcast. We're also on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us. Maybe leave us a nice review or at least five stars on Apple Podcasts if you can. It's always deeply appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.